Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 134, October 9th to October 15th, 1863. Last week, we had a few items, which included a good wrap on the Battle of Chickamauga. We talked about Quantrill continuing to get a well-earned bad reputation at Baxter Springs. We closed out with an attack by a semi-submerged vessel on the USS New Ironsides, and then we introduced the fully submerged CSS Hunley. This week, we are going to head to Virginia to see what's been going on in that neck of the woods. Amongst other events, we are going to be discussing the Battle of Bristow Station. First, though, we need to close off loose ends in Louisiana with the Battle of Sterling's Plantation. Before we do that, of course, we do have some Patreon content we need to talk about, and this month we did a memoir review, and uh, this one is going to be James Harvey Kidd and his personal recollections of the cavalrymen with Custer's Michigan Cavalry Brigade in the Civil War. So it's actually a very detailed account, very pleasantly surprised with this one. We hadn't done a cavalry memoir quite yet. We had a couple infantry you had Mosby in there doing doing his thing as well that we've done, but we had not done one quite like this, and it is very interesting to see. We talked about, of course, Gettysburg and the cavalry action there, and that's a good description in that memoir, uh, amongst other major cavalry actions in the East. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, just talking through some of the major themes of that, then by all means, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description, of course. All those proceeds do go toward the upkeep of the show. When we last left off in Louisiana, the plan had been to engage the rebels in that state, which would hold them down and prevent any joining forces with Magruder in Texas. Once the Union troops had landed at Sabine Pass, they would then effectively cut off the Confederates from Louisiana, forcing them to abandon that state. While there had been a handful of raids conducted along the Mississippi, Major General Francis Herron's division of the 13th Corps would draw the responsibility of heading to the mouth of the Red River, operating a little south of that position. This force would move from the Mississippi to the Atchafalaya River and make things hard for Tom Green's cavalry, as well as Alfred Mouton's Confederate infantry, operating in the Bayou Teche region we talked about when we were referring to the Battle of Irish Bend. Heron would prove to be a little lackluster in this assignment in early September, his division landing at Morganza, Louisiana. The Red River at this point of the year was a little low, therefore not allowing for federal gunboats to operate in that region. His troops would make contact with Texas cavalry on the 7th and 8th around Sterling's plantation. Forming into line, the Union infantry would take all day to drive away a numerically inferior number of rebel horsemen. In the dark, they would push the Atchafalaya River, but the advance would run into enemy artillery, which dissuaded any further advance. Both sides suffered very few in terms of casualties, the Confederates having used the terrain to ambush the Union forces two times. Heron's men would essentially sit at their camps at Morganza, but would suffer in terms of sickness, his ranks being depleted, facing heat and lack of available drinking water. 
his operations would draw the eyes of Tom Green and the cavalry, making sure to always threaten their enemy. On the eastern bank of the Mississippi, Confederate cavalry continued to operate all the way down to the vicinity of Port Hudson. Combine these actions with partisan bands, and it's no wonder Herron would write that there were too many Confederates to deal with. Richard Taylor would grow antsy in the meantime. Now we know, of course, that Grant does not stay in the region, but while he is recovering from a fall, it certainly looks like Banks and Grant will renew their operations. Alexandria and Shreveport were two options for a federal offensive, especially since Texas had failed to materialize. Kirby Smith would hold off for any kind of preemptive strikes other than a cavalry raid by the Arizona regiments. In the meantime, Nathaniel Banks would be sitting in New Orleans. He is still going to outrank both Sherman and Grant, and he will want the theater level of control for all forces. Now, this would not necessarily be a bad thing because Banks and Grant essentially did not cooperate during their sieges of Port Hudson and Vicksburg. If there's one guy who's calling the shots and one guy taking control of all the action, then you know maybe you could have some kind of coordinated effort that would probably be more productive. However, Banks is soon going to be hindered by Grant and his army leaving. With the Army of the Cumberland holed up at Chattanooga, that would take precedence. Franklin, though, would be in a position to redirect his troops from New Orleans, not being able to land at Sabine Pass. Banks would plan to trap the Confederates between the various armies, Franklin moving up the Bayou Teche, Heron remaining where he was, and Sherman moving overland from Vicksburg combining with steel from Little Rock. It would effectively do what they had set out to accomplish earlier in September and move them out of the Pelican State. She also mentioned that this is essentially the same plan that the Red River campaign will be, and that's not going to happen until 1864, though, so keep a bookmark on that. But Franklin's command, led by Ord, would not get off to a good start. As mentioned, there were logistical problems to make an offensive during that time of year, very difficult, so there would not be a lightning strike, and it would be enough time for Taylor to pull his troops back. But puzzlingly, there was not any real movement. Grant's forces were put on hold, as they would be needed to shift east. Logistics stopped Franklin. Tom Green, in the meantime, had been advocating a strike back at the Yankees. Heron and his lone division sitting at Morganza was a prime target. Seeing as the Yankees were no longer advancing, he would be given the green light. Captured prisoners would confirm that there would be time to strike at Heron as he sat in his camp. Now Heron himself would be sick and sent back to New Orleans. Napoleon Dana would take command of the division, Dana not having been in our story since his wounding at Antietam. For Green, the plan would be to use his roughly three brigades to engage and surround the enemy. Union troops remained in their outpost at Sterling Plantation with the main encampment closer to the river. Crossing the Atchafalaya, Green would engage the enemy from the front, flanking them with infantry and cavalry, and then have an additional brigade come in behind, hopefully forcing a surrender. He would have his own Texas cavalry, an infantry brigade under Henry Gray, and an additional brigade under Colonel James Harrison. 
Gray was from a family that had produced military service from his grandfather in the Revolution and father in the War of 1812. Before the war, he was a close friend of Judah Benjamin. Harrison had served in the Mississippi State Senate before the war, and afterward would become a trustee of Baylor University in Texas. In 1863, Harrison would be the trapdoor, with Gray also flanking around the Union outpost. Everything would be set for action on September 28th. Now, local knowledge is oftentimes in these engagements very important. The Sterling Plantation, also known as Botany Bay, was exposed and could be assailed from a variety of roads and cow paths. Manning the post for the Federals was Colonel Leake, with artillery, the 19th Iowa, and 26th Indiana. The 6th Missouri Cavalry was at nearby Norwood Plantation. These horsemen were designed to be swept away by the Texans. But heavy rains made it very difficult, the rain still falling during the battle making conditions extremely muddy. The aggressive opening attack would not be quite so aggressive, and while the 6th Missouri Cavalry was called out, the intricate plan had effectively been unraveled. So oftentimes in the Civil War you see you have these plans and they can be kind of complicated or they seem like maybe they would work very well, but something happens, lack of coordination, and it's really easy in the modern day to say, hey, why don't they just use a cell phone or use a walkie-talkie, right? Well, sort of these coordinated attacks from a variety of different routes, sometimes they don't work very well. Harrison's brigade and Gray's had worked their way to a cane field and were advancing through it, with Harrison's men wearing captured Union uniforms, which definitely illustrates the need for supplies in the Trans-Mississippi. Leake would call out his infantry to make a stand. In the meantime, the main Union camp had been alerted to the action going on at the plantation. The 37th Illinois, commanded by Colonel Black, who we mentioned at Pea Ridge and Prairie Grove, a Medal of Honor winner, would be dispatched by Dana to move to the firing. But Black would pause. Gray and his brigade had sealed off the advance from the main federal camp and were skirmishing with his Illinois troops. The way being blocked, Leake would be on his own. Federal infantry used every outbuilding they could as cover to fire on Harrison's advancing Texans. The action was recorded as being quite fierce for so little of an engagement, with house-to-house -house fighting at the plantation. Confederates actually wavered with the Union troops holding fast. It is possible that Leake could have fought his way out, but this would have inflicted heavy casualties on his command. When Texas cavalry arrived, the action would draw to a close, as the only hope for the Northerners was the 6th Missouri, which had been scattered. Leake and many of his men would surrender, some of the command making their way through the woods and back to friendly lines. His command had suffered some 65 battlefield casualties, with 450 surrendering. Green had suffered some 120 casualties, which was a tough pill to swallow, considering the action was supposed to be relatively bloodless. Dana, in the meantime, had been digging in and preparing for the rebels, and thus Green would offer a truce to collect the wounded. Now, it was also possible that Dana could have moved out and engaged the tired Confederates, but road conditions were not good, and the enemy was allowed to slip away. Overall, not a whole lot had been accomplished. Green was still a feared battlefield commander, 
but Heron's command remained where they were in the meantime. Green, however, would not remain where he was. His command was shifted again to counter any push that Franklin would conduct moving out from Bisland. Kirby Smith was confused that there was no forward motion in the Bayou Teche region for some time, and even when there was, it was extremely slow. There was some skirmishing between Confederate cavalry and Louisiana and Texas regiments loyal to the Union. The presence and lead element of these units was important because they had local knowledge of the regions and perhaps even regions where Banks wanted to go. The kind of joint operation that Banks was looking for was not going to materialize. Grant was gone, as was the majority of his army. But even with their loss, it might have been possible to accomplish some of the goals. His army of the Gulf would continue in their conquest of Louisiana, or they could turn west and invade Texas. We will pause with that thought in mind and revisit this region in a future episode. So we need to do a little bit of backtracking in order to reach our destination in Virginia today. It's been quite some time since we had checked in with the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac. When we last left off, Robert E. Lee had escaped out of Williamsport, Maryland, and then again in the Loudoun Valley to make it to Culpeper Courthouse. George Meade's Union Army had trailed, ending up in the familiar territory around Warrenton. Despite having won a victory in Pennsylvania, Meade had managed to draw the disappointment of Lincoln and Halleck in the following days, although Halleck had warmed at least a little. I really do kind of get the dad's not mad, he's just disappointed vibe from Lincoln, though. Even though his army had been severely depleted, Meade was willing to press Lee and maybe throw his men into a new offensive, assuming he could use his cavalry effectively against the gray-clad enemy. By the end of July, he would roll out a plan to move his men across the Rappahannock, with Slocum and the 12th Corps securing Kelly's Ford, and Newton's 1st Corps securing Fords closer to Brandy Station. Already this area had seen its fill of action, so we should be very familiar with the names. John Buford would press beyond the area around Brandy Station. Meade realized that for his army to advance, he would need to open up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, whose bridge had been previously destroyed. Securing a foothold on the rebel side of the river would allow for the engineers to accomplish this task. Lee had already decided that he needed to pull back to the Rapidan, though, Culpepper not really being conducive to a defensive stand. I've actually seen it where the terrain in that particular area is not good terrain. You're coming down from the north, it's a higher ground, so obviously you don't want to be on lower ground when somebody is attacking you, not going to be conducive to a kind of defense so that's kind of the rationale just the shape of the terrain and too often we have examples of terrain really playing into these campaigns these battles these campaigns and this is certainly a great example of that on august 1st the infantry would establish their beachhead and buford would drive wade hampton's cavalry you remember that Wade Hampton had been severely wounded at Gettysburg, and so his men, who were also depleted in terms of horse and manpower, would be commanded by recently promoted Brigadier General Lawrence Baker. Baker would be wounded during the fighting with Buford, the 1st Cavalry Division using their superior numbers to push back the Legion. 
In fact, several more officers taking command of the brigade would be knocked out of the action, speaking to the fierce nature of the fighting. Hampton's brigade would conduct a fighting retreat, complete with charges met with countercharges by Buford's troopers. Eventually, Jeb Stewart would call in Grumble Jones, as well as infantry support, to stem the tide and push Buford back. The Federals would lose around 270 men, compared to 200 on the Confederate side, in the Second Battle of Brandy Station. Plans to continue to the retreat to the Rapidan went forward. Once across the Rapidan, the month of August would be spent with rebuilding activities, including resupply. During this time as well, Lee would send his letter of resignation, which we read and talked about in a previous episode. Both the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac would see replacements arrive, and surprisingly, both would see their ranks swell to around the same strength as before Gettysburg. Both armies would see their ranks take some hits, though. For Meade, he was forced to reduce his veteran troops by sending several regiments to enforce the draft in New York. You see, we had some additional fallout there from these violent events. Likewise, we have the setbacks that Bragg is seeing in Tennessee and Georgia. Lee would be called into Richmond to discuss options. The commander of the Army of Northern Virginia would be in favor of an offensive against Meade, which might make Washington uneasy, but this tactic had already been tried. Reinforcements needed to be sent to Bragg, and they needed to be substantial. Q Longstreet and the Western Bloc. It had been floated that Lee should be the one to go with the troops in order to take command, which is an intriguing thought, but he would opt to remain in Virginia. Early September would see Longstreet start preparations. I've actually seen it argued that Lee taking command in that region would have been probably the best thing that they could have come up with. You know, Longstreet, as we saw in Chickamauga, was not as effective, and then if Lee had been able to kind of solidify, although there is a counter-argument to that, that that army was so fractured in terms of their officer structure, uh, thanks to Bragg and his kind of heavy-handed tactics against some of his officers, that it wouldn't have made a difference. But having Lee go down there and come up with a plan might have been an interesting thought. And certainly, if he had left Longstreet, say, in charge of the army in Virginia, Longstreet, we know, is pretty good at defense, so, it might have worked out, but it's one of those what-ifs that we, we talk about when it comes to the Civil War. On September 13th, Alfred Pleasanton would be tasked with crossing the Rappahannock and probing toward Culpeper to ascertain the intentions of the enemy and possibly confirm if Longstreet had, in fact, gone south. Accompanying his three divisions would be the Second Corps, commanded by Governor Warren. Warren having taken over for Alexander Hayes, despite his good performance on the third day at Gettysburg. Buford and Kilpatrick would cross the Rappahannock and drive on Culpeper from the regions of the old Brandy Station battlefield. Gregg's division would also cross and converge from the north. Stewart would need to be on the defensive for a time, at least long enough for Confederate stores to be transported south by train. The battle would begin with rebel cavalry acting as they did in August, attempting to slow the enemy horsemen. Sections of the command would set up with artillery to the east and to the south of town. Southern guns would prove effective against the northern troops. The 2nd New York, as well as Custer's brigade, would move to eliminate the threat. 
Custer would actually be wounded in this action with a shot landing near him, leading the charge from the front, as always. A rebel gun was taken as the Confederates were forced to retreat. Another was taken as the 1st Vermont followed up the attack. Again, south of town, the Confederates would make a stand. This time, Union artillery would drive them. Supplies having been evacuated, the fighting would cease, with both sides having casualties with a little over 100. Meade would not know what to make of the action and remain inactive for the time being. Part of the problem was that both armies were sort of handcuffed. Lee, of course, was missing Longstreet, and Meade, while holding a numerical advantage, would be hampered by Washington. Obviously, the focus was on Georgia, so the instructions were to not bring on any disasters. In fact, neither Lincoln or Halleck really gave him proper instruction at all. We can be sympathetic to Meade in this sense, but given that Lee is greatly reduced in numbers, maybe there could have been something done. Meade had hoped that the enemy would withdraw, but this was not the case. Not getting any instruction, he would order recon to the west. Buford and Kilpatrick would scout in Madison County. On September 22nd, Buford would run into a division under Stuart at Jack's shop. The battle would be mostly an artillery duel for the early part. Buford had alerted Kilpatrick to swing around to the rear of the enemy while he held them in place. The columns had taken different roads, though. Stuart was aware of Kilpatrick and had sent for reinforcements, as well as turned part of his command around. Charges and countercharges in both front and rear would save the Confederate line. Afterward, Stuart would chase after Kilpatrick. On the 23rd, skirmishing would involve a regiment of the Michigan Brigade, but the Union Raiders would escape intact. Both sides would lose approximately 120 casualties in the fight. From these actions, Meade would learn that the left flank of the enemy was not wise to attempt to exploit. As a result of his inactivity, Lincoln would shift the 12th and 11th Corps under the direction of Joe Hooker to help the efforts relieving Chattanooga. As we discussed earlier, Grant's forces were on the move. It deemed a necessity to help the trap and supply dwindled Army of the Cumberland. We see a shift in emphasis from both sides now, but unlike Meade, his counterpart was ready to go on the offensive. In early October, the Army of Northern Virginia was still outnumbered. This, though, really did not phase Lee, who had maybe sniffed out that Meade was being indecisive. His remaining corps of Hill and Ewell would swing out on October 8th into Madison County. Fitzhugh Lee would remain on the Rapidan line. Meade had already planned a forward thrust by Buford's cavalry along with the 1st and 6th Corps. But Lee's flanking motion would put this on pause, especially when Stuart's cavalry captured an entire regiment of New Yorkers and then engaged Kilpatrick's cavalry around James City, a little west of Culpeper. Buford's division of cavalry would still be crossing the Rapidan, unaware of the change of plan by Meade. As a result, Fitzhugh Lee would try to trap and eliminate Buford at a place called Morton's Ford. Thomas Devon's cavalry brigade had crossed with the other north of the river. 
attacking the separated forces, Buford's division would fight briefly before escaping. As the Army of the Potomac withdrew further north, there would be more cavalry action with Jeb Stuart attempting to flank Kilpatrick. There would be a race to Fleetwood Heights on the old Brandy Station battlefield. Buford was able to form up on the high ground, but Kilpatrick would almost be caught by the rebels, who were able to converge in two columns as Fitzhugh Lee was coming up from the south. George Armstrong Custer would yet again lead a charge of two of his Michigan Cavalry regiments to escape. Thomas Rosser and his command also performed well on the Confederate side as the two sides engaged generally. Pleasanton would be allowed to retreat back to the Rappahannock though, as total destruction of the Yankee cavalry eluded Stuart. Casualties again reflected the hard fighting, with 274 on the rebel side and 310 on that of the north. Meade had pulled his army to relatively where they had started on the side of the Rappahannock. He would use October 12th to launch a reconnaissance in force under the overall command of John Sedgwick. Now, it was indeed an odd choice to do this having just withdrawn, but the problem was, he was not really sure what Lee was doing, which would pose a problem. Another problem was that Lee had not been idle and patiently waited at Culpeper for Sedgwick to find him. In fact, what the Union forces ran into was a brigade of cavalry under Pierce Young. Young did his best impression of a frilled lizard, trying to scare the Yankees and make them think the Army of Northern Virginia was there in force. Buford, whose cavalry was supporting the probe, did not buy that, though. It was apparently it was moving somewhere else. That somewhere was the right flank protected by the 3rd Division of Union Cavalry under David McMurtry Gregg. Now, you might be wondering, actually, at this point, you know, why exactly, with these reduced numbers, is Robert E. Lee doing this? Why is he conducting an offensive action? And that is a fair question, and it can be summed up pretty easily with Robert E. Lee is a fan of offensive action. He does not like being on the defensive. We see even in the latter stages of the war, he's trying to come up with some way in which he can attack, even if he's sort of on the defensive, for the most part. And I think we can also take a look at what he knows about Meade. And the best example that he's going to have of Meade is Gettysburg. And Meade, we know in that battle, fought primarily a defensive action, right? So there was not a whole lot of room for offensive capability in that battle. And certainly afterwards, he doesn't really follow it up either. So we can also maybe think that Lee is discounting Meade and his offensive capability. So with that off the table and he knows he's going to be defensive, then even though he's down to just two core, he doesn't have Longstreet anymore, he might be able to make something happen and at least kind of turn the tide in this theater. Ewell and Hill would be moving on parallel routes, trying to gain Meade's rear. They would brush by the cavalry, forcing their way across the Rappahannock, which was not where Meade wished them to be. Lack of accurate reporting actually led the Army of Northern Virginia having stolen a march on the Federals, which would lead Meade to order a retreat back in the direction of Centerville. Remember, too, that Meade has been instructed not to have any kind of disaster happen, right? So a Confederate force, even if it's not as many men as he has, coming up in his rear 
and being pretty close to Washington. You know, we talked about Centerville when we talked about the Manassas campaigns. If they're able to get there, that's pretty close to Washington. And not that Lee would have been able to take Washington with a reduced army, but that's not going to look well for the Lincoln administration either. So Meade is trying not to have that happen. He was only sure that Stuart had forced his way across the river, and so Lee's whereabouts were still unknown. It was possible Meade's flank or rear could be exposed, creating the necessity for retreat, regardless of how Washington felt about it. Different routes were selected for various units, moving the men back to where they would potentially reach Bristow Station, a stop on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Lee, who was at Warrenton, would wish to have concrete evidence that Meade was still trying to escape as opposed to converging his forces on the Gray Fox. Stewart would move forward to scout the area and actually find himself with a large amount of men in between the moving columns of the enemy. William French and the Third Corps would be blocking his route to friendly lines around Warrenton. Part of Stewart's command under Lunsford Lomax of Fitzhugh Lee's command would try to delay French. Brigades under Collis and de Trobriand would drive away the cavalry, thus ensuring that Stuart would have to spend the night trapped. Luckily, Lee was alerted to the danger and started moving his men. Following up on the 3rd Corps would be the 2nd Corps, commanded by Warren. Warren and his men would be stationed around Auburn, crossing Cedar Run. It would be here that Lomax would try again on October 14th, attacking the Federal pickets of the 10th New York Cavalry. The 10th would hold up Lomax, mounting a charge before peeling back toward Gregg's main body of cavalry, trying to screen Warren's troops. Caldwell had made it across, Hayes and Webb following up with their divisions. Stuart, sensing that the infantry was on the way to the rescue, would decide to unlimber his artillery and fire shells into Caldwell's resting division. Unfortunately for Stuart, Ewell was delayed coming up and therefore would not be in position. Caldwell and his full division, like a hornet's nest being kicked, was going to be a problem. The 1st North Carolina Cavalry would launch a spoiling charge at the oncoming skirmish lines, and, while pushing back one line, a second would form a circle of bayonets, stopping the charge, and mortally wounding Colonel Ruffin of the 1st. Stuart, though, was able to escape. But Caldwell was not out of the woods. His division would be the target of Yule having finally arrived. Ewell would decide to try a double envelopment, roads swinging east and early north. In the meantime, artillery would open up on Caldwell, his men on a strong position known as Coffee Hill. For a while, the cannon would exchange shots, but it was apparent to Caldwell that the Confederates were trying to work their way behind him and maybe cut off his retreat. At the right time, following all the baggage of the 2nd Corps making across Cedar Run, he would begin to move after the rest of the Corps. To illustrate just how close Ewell came to seriously hampering the Federals, Brooks' brigade would have to run a gauntlet of artillery and skirmish fire to escape. They would suffer some 130 casualties, mostly men who were trapped by Ewell. The rebels would chase after Warren, nipping at his heels, but eventually the Johnnies would give up the chase, realizing the opportunity was lost. What we just described was the Battle of Auburn, connected with the Battle of Bristow Station which we will close out on, because while Yule was going to the assistance of Stuart, A.P. Hill was making mischief of his own. 
Hill was feeling aggressive, which probably could have been useful at Gettysburg. With the Army of the Potomac withdrawing, he would wish to capitalize. His men found themselves at a place called New Baltimore, and from there they could move further east toward Bristow Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Crucially, there would be no cavalry to feel out what lay before them. Stuart was occupied, commanding Hampton's division personally, and Fitzhugh Lee's division was likewise scattered. Henry Heath and his division would be leading the way. Now, you would think that A.P. Hill especially would have learned his lesson that maybe advancing without a cavalry support might be a problem, but obviously he's, uh, he's feeling very frisky today, so he is going to go ahead and essentially do the same thing that he did at Gettysburg, albeit he did not have a very good performance at that battle either. We have some new faces, which I want to go over more in depth with in a future episode, as obviously with Gettysburg as well, we had a depletion in the officer ranks. John Cook would lead a brigade of North Carolina regiments from the defenses of Richmond, Cook having served ably as a regimental commander. William Kirkland, who had seen action in the valley and out west, would lead the remnants of Pettigrew's brigade, with Joseph Davis and Henry Walker commanding Archer's and Brock and Brow's combined brigades. Hill would move these men in the direction of the station and the 5th Corps. Meade had ordered Sykes and his command to remain in supporting distance of Warren, who is still having Ewell advancing in his wake. Hill would deploy Heath's division in a line of battle, leaving Davis in reserve. Artillery would deploy and shell the 5th Corps troops who were milling about. This expedited their departure, with only Crawford's division lingering under the command of Irish-born Buck McCandless. With Heath's men having been deployed, Hill resolved to continue his advance, but was met by skirmishers of the 2nd Corps following the railroad. These men were the 1st Minnesota of Webb's division making contact with the rebels. This paused Hill briefly, calling for reinforcements from Richard Anderson's division, which included Perry and Carnot Posey's brigade. In the meantime, Warren was forming a line of battle behind a railroad embankment, which made up of Webb's division as well as Hayes's. A.P. Hill, on the other hand, had continued the pursuit, with the original orders to swing north at the escaping Federals, some of which were belonging to the 5th Corps. One brigade would adhere to these directions while the main battle line realized that there were troops in their front. Two more regiments had joined the 1st Minnesota in skirmishing, but the weight of the Confederate assault had driven them back. The Gophers had been occupying a small knoll that, despite the battery commander's wishes, was directly occupied by A.P. Hill. Federal guns setting up on high ground beyond the railroad cut would be an issue. Also an issue would be the relatively open ground that Kirkland and Cook were now forced to advance across. Their assaults would attract fire from the various regiments, ending in a bloody repulse. Two of Kirkland's regiments would find a soft spot in Warren's line, turning very briefly as right, but with no support that attempt would come up empty. McIntosh's battery, who had occupied the knoll, was captured, the gunners unable to get their pieces off the field before the aggressive Alex Hayes ordered a counterattack. Confederate snipers also needed to be cleared, as they mortally wounded Brigade Commander James Mallon. 
but the battle seemingly would not be over despite Cook and Kirkland's failure. Ewell's commander would start to form up, but would take a long time in doing so, joined by Carnot Posey and Perry. Artillery would duel in the dwindling daylight, which would not provide too much other than the mortal wounding of Carnot Posey, who was hit in the thigh by a shell fragment. John B. Gordon would attempt to chase after the Federal supplies supported by Northern Cavalry, disobeying orders in the process, but he would not catch them. Warren would be allowed to slip away in the night, with a planned Confederate assault finally with the overwhelming weight needed, catching nothing but air in the morning of the 15th. Confederate casualties at Bristow Station were high considering the small amount of action, numbering 1,378, with 136 killed and almost 790 wounded, an additional 445 missing. The Federals only lost 545, with 48 being killed, marking the battle an extremely lopsided affair. Uncharacteristically, Lee would lash out at Hill for the failure, acknowledging it was indeed the firing of Virginians' fault before saying, Well, General, bury these poor men and let us say nothing more about it. Hill had erred, it is very true, repeating the same mistake the rebels had suffered at Gettysburg, but with far less men. Had Hill been more active in the battle, maybe he would have taken some lessons away from the Pennsylvania soil, but that's my two cents. A golden opportunity to strike at the Army of the Potomac had slipped away. So we're going to call it a day there. We talked about Sterling Plantation and the action there in Louisiana. We also had a lengthy backtrack to cover all the events following Lee's escape back into Virginia, ending with the Battle of Bristow Station. Next week, we need to wrap up that campaign. We will have some scattered events in North Carolina and Florida, but also importantly, we will say goodbye to William Stark Rosecrans. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post in the description should be linked to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>